0: Hey folks, welcome to Footnotes. I'm your host, Jamar Tisby, bringing news and views to help you become a more informed citizen, activist, and believer. In this episode of Footnotes, I dive into the long-awaited impeachment investigation of the president. I discuss the courage of climate activist Greta Thunberg, make it clear that arresting a six-year-old is not okay, and I talk about black Christian self-empowerment. But first, some announcements. The Joy and Justice Conference is coming up soon. By the time you listen to this podcast, we'll be one week away from the conference, our first national conference. And then it's, it's kind of a stunning thought for me. The next time I record footnotes, the conference will be over. All of this work, all of this preparation, it's coming to fruition in just a little while And then in just a little while, too, it'll be gone. I don't know if we'll ever do another conference. And based on the uh, difficulty of the planning process for this one, uh, it's very much up in the air. So what I'm saying is, get there. Get there if you possibly can. Come to the Joy and Justice Conference. This is one... If you notice in our advertisements, in our promo for it, it's not really focused on, Hey, come here. This particular person, right? Like a lot of other conferences have these big name speakers, these, these folks who have written the books you love or they're celebrities of some sort. The people we have are absolutely well known. They have platforms, uh, but they might not be known in your circles. Um, and, and moreover, This is not just about a particular personality. This is about the community. This is what I love about the Joy and Justice Conference. Now, our speakers, it's just going to be incredible content. That's the part of the conference that I feel uh, most calm about going into it. I just know everyone's going to bring it. But what I want for people is to come out and experience the community. If you are tired, if you are stressed out by our political climate, if you are the only person of color, the only black person in your workplace or your school or your church and you feel uh, isolated and alone, this conference is for you. And you can still buy your tickets. You just go to joyinjustice.com and you can register. We are also still fundraising. So Many of you can't make it to this one for logistical reasons, for scheduling reasons, but you can still support the conference. So go again to joyandjustice.com in the upper right-hand corner. There is a donate button. You can donate online or via check. So we would appreciate your support in any form possible. And please say a quick prayer Uh, right after this podcast, or even while you're listening, uh, that God will be glorified in this conference, that we would come together and experience a wonderful time of fellowship and community. All right, one of the parts of footnotes that is my favorite is the reviews. I am utterly astounded. We broke the 200 reviews mark a couple of weeks ago. Now we're up to 216 reviews, which is up from 204 last episode. And keep them coming. If you listen to this podcast, if you find it helpful, if it's something that you think other people should listen to, then by leaving a review, you make it easier for people to find it. And what's stopping you? I know how it is. Uh, We have a lot to do. You're probably listening to this podcast on the go. But I would encourage you at some point, put it on your schedule, five minutes uh, to to subscribe, rate and review footnotes. Um, Put it on your to do list. Uh, All I'm saying is make time for it and it'll get done and you get it done quick. And then you feel really good uh, because you've accomplished a task. For me, some days, which feel so out of control and so overwhelmingly busy, it really is a motivator to check off a very simple task and feel a sense of accomplishment. So that's my pitch for you to make a review. Here is one from Sanchez Fair. Sanchez writes, Jamar, thanks for sharing your perspective as a fellow podcaster, theologian, and African-American seeking to do justice in America, I am grateful for your perspective. It has been encouraging listening to your podcast and reading your books as I began my doctorate in redemptive ministry. Continue to inspire us all, especially us young black leaders seeking to redeem Christianity and America. Blessings from Sanchez Fair And he says, P.S., I was in Dr. Nicole Martin's class when you spoke back in January. Uh, Nicole Massey Martin is going to speak at our conference, and she was gracious enough to invite me via Skype to speak to one of her classes of uh, seminary students. And so apparently Sanchez was in that class. So it's really neat to see that as I go across the country or even just... um, Uh, virtually go around the country to meet folks who have listened to my talks and now listen to the podcast. So I appreciate that review, Sanchez. Uh, Hopefully we can cross paths again. On to the news. House Democrats announce a formal impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. Finally. In what is surely the biggest political news of the last couple of weeks, Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a long holdout against impeachment, finally announced a formal impeachment inquiry into the president. According to a New York Times article, Miss Pelosi's declaration after months of reticence by Democrats who had feared the political consequences of impeaching a president, many of them long ago concluded was unfit for office, was a stunning turn that set the stage for a history-making and exceedingly bitter confrontation between the Democratic-led House and a defiant president who has thumbed his nose at institutional norms. Nancy Pelosi, in an announcement, she said, the actions taken to date by the president have seriously violated the Constitution. She went on to say that his actions were, quote, a betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. She concluded her comments by saying, he must be held accountable. No one is above the law. So people have been talking about impeaching Trump since basically the start of his presidency back in January 2017. And you could easily take your pick of potentially impeachable offenses, obstructing justice. So he attempted to get James Comey, the former FBI director, to drop investigations related to officials in Trump's cabinet or administration and into Trump's own dealings with Russia. More on that later. He violated the emoluments clause, many allege. So there's a foreign emoluments clause. Uh, the president can't accept gifts from foreign officials that would personally benefit him. Um, but foreign officials frequently stay in Trump's host- hotels or offer his businesses deals in their own countries. And there's a domestic emoluments clause. And basically every time that, that Trump plays golf at one of his resorts, He's using taxpayer money to get there, to stay there, to uh, house uh, his entourage and to profit his own business and get richer from being the president. Collusion. Working with Russia, Trump's own son met with a Russian national in hopes of getting dirt on his Democratic presidential opponent, Hillary Clinton, which led to the Mueller investigation to determine whether Russia whether collusion with Russia to rig the election had taken place. And those are just a few. We didn't even talk about violating the rights of immigrants, harassing his political opponents by calling them names like Pocahontas or retweeting, demeaning messages, carelessly sending messages that could incite racist and xenophobic violence, attacking the press paying off women who he had affairs with in order to keep them quiet uh, and and prevent them from uh, sharing potentially damaging information during the election. We can go on and on and on about the president's potentially impeachable offenses. Practically everything this man has done in office has been shady. Much of it very likely has been illegal. So what finally pushed House Democrats, namely Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, to launch a formal impeachment inquiry. Why now? Well, according to newly released information on a phone call in July of 2019, Trump allegedly pressured the President of Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, to investigate presidential candidate Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, over investigations, over allegations of corruption, and possibly Joe Biden's own attempts to cover the supposed corruption of his son. Now, mind you, there's no evidence of Joe Biden doing this or acting in the interests of his son. Uh, Ukraine officials themselves have put out information uh, to, to that effect. But on top of that phone call with the Ukrainian president, where it seems Trump asked a foreign power to investigate a political opponent, which is the same thing they were investigating with Russian collusion, um, about a week before that call, Trump withheld military aid to Ukraine. Some people speculate that he may have been withholding that aid until Zelensky agreed to investigate Biden or make some other concessions that were not all together on the up and up. Now, on top of this, a whistleblower in the government heard Trump's communications with a foreign leader and had major concerns over promises that Trump made to the leader. Now, to be clear, the whistleblower's complaint wasn't just about this phone call. It was a pattern that this person had observed. It concerned the person enough that he or she reported it, but that complaint so far has been withheld by Trump's administration. Now, Trump now says he's going to release the transcripts of the phone call, but don't get distracted. This isn't just about the word the single phone call, it's not just about the actual words that were spoken, it's about a pattern of behavior, it's also about a trajectory of asking a foreign power for help to investigate a political opponent, which is not only unpatriotic, it's it's very illegal. And by the time this podcast episode drops, in about a day, who knows what else may have occurred? So here's what I think. When it comes to an impeachment inquiry into President Trump, it really just seemed like a matter of time. I went through just a minute ago the litany of potentially impeachable crimes, but it's just evident that this man is patently unfit for office. Now, if you're hearing this and you lean uh, Republican, this is not really about partisanship. This is about honesty. This is about an attitude and a disposition of being the highest elected political official in the most military and economically powerful country in the world. Even if you take away all of his crimes and suspect dealings, Trump doesn't even have the work ethic a president should have. I've said this before. Historians, people who study history are are, are very reluctant to say, hey, this is unprecedented because there's always some sort of antecedent, some sort of pattern, something that, that, that echoes through time. But if there is something that seems unique about this president, It's that he doesn't even want the job. He wants the attention. He wants the power. He wants the bully pulpit. But he doesn't want to serve. He doesn't want to serve the American people. He doesn't want to serve a democracy. He doesn't want to serve anyone but himself. And that shows in how he spends his time, who he agrees with, disagree with. And that's not me just being anti-Trump. His own actions indict him. You can see that for yourself. But we do need to talk about Republicans. Most of the delay from Democrats, the way I have read the news and and heard from Democratic statements, is they were hesitant to impeach mainly because of political calculations and thinking that impeachment would only embolden Trump's base. Now, it's a near certainty that a Republican-controlled Senate will not vote to impeach no matter what the inquiry finds and what comes from the House of Representatives. But what does that say about the current Republican Party? That people in the party are already adamantly opposed to impeachment and saying that they won't vote to impeach before we've even gone through a formal inquiry. Trump has so taken over the party that nearly every Republican is scared that just a verbal attack from the president, just a tweet, could torpedo their chances at re-election and erode support for them among their base. You can see what's happening to the Republican Party by looking at the amount of retirements that are taking place, the amount of Republican candidates who are saying, okay, I'm done. If this is the party, I don't want re-election. Now, not everyone is doing it for those reasons, but, but listen at this. 14 House Republicans are retiring uh, at the next cycle, versus just three House Democrats. 14 to 3 are retiring. And that doesn't even include Republican candidates who are just simply not running for re-election. So Trump is gutting the party in terms of personnel, not to mention morally and politically. And the question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And what about white evangelicals who supported Trump? It's the same question to them. Is it worth it? This man has been lying. He's verbally abusive. He's a bully. He's been incredibly accused by, by dozens of women of sexual assault or misconduct. He's under investigation now for a second time for betraying the country and on and on and on it goes. And you can believe this is all one giant conspiracy by the left if you want and many people undoubtedly do believe that. But that requires a, a willful rejection of clear facts and a, and a rejection of a readily identifiable pattern of behavior. Is it worth it? So here's the bottom line issue for me when it comes to impeachment. So it's happening now. Uh, probably could have happened a lot sooner. But the question is not is it convenient Not is it politically expedient, but is it right? Is impeachment the right call? Has the president done something or multiple things worthy of this level of investigation? And if impeachment is the right call, which it seems like, given what we know, it is the right call, then do it do it wholeheartedly, dive into it, don't do it halfway, don't do it lukewarm, don't do it wondering what voters will think, do it in a single-minded pursuit of the truth and be prepared for the results whatever they may be. And let the people who don't support impeachment or who don't vote for it, let them deal with their own consciences and with the ramifications of their actions. If they're so concerned simply about re-election and not about potential crimes, then that's on them. And history will judge who acted courageously and with integrity and who failed the American people and the very principles of democracy. The Bible says a little child will teach them. I think that applies to teenagers, too. A teenager takes all of us adults to task about climate change. Greta Thunberg is a 16-year-old climate activist from Sweden who's been in the news for more than a year for her bold and outspoken push for action around global warming and the destruction of the environment. Let me tell you a little bit about young Greta. She, in 2011, heard about the climate disaster when she was about eight years old, and she just couldn't understand why adults weren't doing more. So she started close to home. She convinced her parents to reduce their carbon footprint, which required, you know, these small adjustments like becoming vegan so they would no longer eat meat and refusing to travel by air, which her mother is an opera singer. And sang internationally. And so that caused a major shift in her mother's career and the places she could go. She was inspired years later as maybe a 14 or 15 year old. She was inspired by the survivors of the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. In the United States. She saw them, them striking, she saw them uh, mobilizing people for activism and marching and doing things like that. And so she got in her idea that she could do something similar around climate change. She first came to international attention for staging solo demonstrations outside the Swedish, Swedish parliament. And initially, no one, none of her classmates or anyone else wanted to join her. So she just did it by herself. She sat in front of, of the Swedish parliament holding a sign saying, school strike for climate. And a picture of her went viral. She sort of got. International attention that way. She started Fridays for the Future, which is now um, a whole bunch of students who have sort of caught this vision. And uh, people around the country in Sweden and perhaps even further than that, they protest against climate inaction and for uh change in our climate policies. And she helped spark international multi-city strikes for climate change. There may have been one in your city. There have been several in the U.S. She's um, written and spoken publicly about climate change. She's known for her very blunt, no-nonsense discourse. And she also has Asperger's syndrome, which she calls her superpower. In August of this year, she traveled across the ocean in a boat outfitted with solar panels. Uh, They call it a a carbon-neutral form of travel. And she did it as a, a demonstration because she refuses to fly, even though she's an in-demand international speaker. And so uh, recently at the UN Climate Summit in New York, she delivered this impassioned speech. So everything I've just said about Greta Thunberg, you are going to hear it in this clip of her. So listen to this beginning of Greta Thunberg, Thunberg's speech
1: People are dying. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you! For more than 30 years, the science has been crystal clear. then you would be evil, and that I refuse to believe.
0: Now, I wouldn't call myself a climate change activist, but I, I want to be one after Thunberg's speech. I mean, that is indicting, it's scathing, and at the same time, it's true and inspiring. Um, she's, she's right, so the science is there. And we adults who have more economic, political, and institutional power than kids, we need to act. And second, she's walking the walk. She's not only reducing her personal impact on the environment, but she's acting as if this is the crisis that it truly is. So she's taking time off school. She's speaking truth to power. She's recruiting others to the cause. In this way, she reminds me of the youth activists in the civil rights movement. If you read, and and very few books really dwell on this fact, but students um, were involved in the civil rights movement, that has been documented. But, But what strikes me about that is these students, these young people, teenagers, sometimes younger, had to decide for themselves that civil rights was an urgent enough matter that affected their lives and the lives of the people they loved in a community they cared about enough to take off school. Now, maybe you were a nerd like me. I went for the attendance award. I tried never to miss a day of school. So they th- these activists decide to miss school and they're putting their freedom on the line, knowing they could be arrested. In the case of uh, certain instances, they could have fire hoses or police dogs uh, on them. There were some college student activists in the civil rights movement who even quit school, not because they didn't like school, not because they didn't see college as a pathway to more professional opportunities, but because they felt the urgency of fighting racial injustice so much that it took priority even over a formal education and Greta is in that line i mean it's its It really makes you think and ponder. If these problems, whether it's climate change or racial injustice or whatever issue it may be, if these issues are so important, what are we willing to, to sacrifice? Are we willing to interrupt our lives to take action on it? And Greta is a lesson in integrity, that integrity builds credibility, which builds a movement. In any area of activism, the sincerity and the passion of its leaders tends to inspire others to act as well. I try to do this in my racial activism. We need people in all areas of injustice to act with the same courage and commitment of a Greta Thunberg or many, many other young people. But let me warn you, this comes with a cost. There was vicious backlash for this latest speech that we just heard a clip of. There was a pundit on Fox News who called Greta Thunberg a mentally ill Swedish child. It was so bad that even Fox News had to apologize for it and say they're not going to have this particular individual back on their shows. Dinesh D'Souza, who has been taken down again and again and again by historians for his awful interpretations of history, D'Souza tweeted a picture of Thunberg side by side with a drawing, an illustration of, of a Nazi teenager. And he said in the tweet, children, notably Nordic white girls with braids and red cheeks, were often used in Nazi propaganda, an old Goebbels technique, referring to the Nazi minister of propaganda. Uh, So comparing her to a Nazi, Laura Ingram, again on Fox, Uh, made this comparison between Children of the Corn, which is a movie about, uh, it's a horror movie about children killing adults in their town. And she called uh, uh, her reference Children of the Climate. She says she's looking forward to the horror film remake called Children of the Climate. And then Trump, the president, he's back here again, sarcastically wrote, she seems like a very happy young girl looking forward to a bright and wonderful future. So nice to see. Uh, So the president himself trolls her online. So if they'll do this to a 16-year-old girl talking about our planet's future and the well-being of our children, what will they do to those of us who talk about white supremacy and the fierce urgency of now? We'll get the same, perhaps even worse. Speaking of children, let's talk about a six-year-old black girl getting arrested. You heard that right, a six-year-old. An article from News Channel 8 in Florida says a Florida grandmother was shocked to find out her six-year-old granddaughter had been arrested Thursday for throwing a tantrum. Marilyn Kirkland said that her granddaughter Kaya's journey to the juvenile detention center by Orlando police officers began at Lucius and Emma Nixon Elementary Charter School. And she said, what do you mean she was arrested? And an official said there was an incident and she kicked somebody and she's being charged and she's on her way. According to the grandmother, that's what happened. And the same officer who arrested her granddaughter also arrested another unidentified six-year-old in an unrelated incident. And look, they didn't hold back with Kaya. They handcuffed her. She was taken in the back of a police car to the station. She was fingerprinted. They even gave her a mug shot. Now, um so before you just explode, like I was about to do when I first heard this, the Florida State's attorney said they will not prosecute. They've decried this arrest. They said it's a failure. Uh, They're not supposed to do that. Officers are not supposed to do that. The officer who arrested the six-year-old, his name is Dennis Edwards. He's a black man. He was first suspended and then very quickly was fired. So he's off the police force now. But look, don't get it twisted. This is actually part of a pattern. Uh, Statistics from a news report said that uh, there have been about 3,000 arrests in Florida of children ages 5 to 12. Young kids too, in in Florida and I'm sure around the country. So here's what I think. This is why you don't put police officers in schools, not on a full-time basis, and especially not in an elementary school. A lot of people say, for safety's sake, we need more cops in and around school buildings. I think that's not the best approach. When you have people who are empowered to use force, and even deadly force, and people who have the ability to restrict your freedom by putting you behind bars, at some point, they are going to use that power against children. I worked as a teacher and a middle school principal for nearly a decade. I have dealt with all kinds of kids and all kinds of behavior issues, some of them clinically diagnosed. There have been times when we have had to call the police because of rumors of knives or guns in the school, or sometimes for something like making sure that a parent who doesn't have legal custody of a child and lost that custody in court, uh, we've called the police to make sure that parent didn't come and illegally pick up their child. Never would it cross my mind to have a six year old come into contact with law enforcement, much less. If I, the other adults in the building, and the parents had anything to say about it. So, the fact that this happened, that's not just an issue with the police department and with this law enforcement enforcement officer. It's a failure on the part of the educators and the adults in that building, too. How did it get to the point where, did they protest? Maybe they did, that didn't make it into the news reports, but to, 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 to see an event escalate to the point where a six-year-old gets handcuffed, put in a police car, taken to the station, fingerprinted, and has a mugshot taken. At some point, the adults, the educators have have to intervene and say, wait, this is way too far. So back to the main point, right? Like having officers in schools, so many times police officers fail to de-escalate. And when you're entrusted by law with a gun and you're around kids, that's a very dangerous situation. So, of course, we need to protect students and educators, but there's protection and there's policing. When kids feel protected, they flourish. They loosen up. They act like kids because they feel safe. But when kids feel policed, they tighten up. They push back against authority. They start to embrace unhealthy images of themselves as disobedient, and they start to view themselves as potential lawbreakers. In a word, they feel unsafe, and this is the reaction when kids feel unsafe. So it's better just to train the staff in something like restorative justice techniques or or de-escalation. It's better to invest in a full-time therapist at a school, than a full-time police officer. It's better to treat kids as developing adults who need nurture and care, and as fully-fledged image-bearers of God worthy of kindness. Not incarceration. Much less at six years old. A whistleblower calls out relevant media group for racism. So this last topic is kind of a blend of current events and Tisbits. Normally, Tisbits is the segment where I just reflect on life. It may not be a current event. It's just something that I'm thinking through or going through. And this last topic kind of touches on both. There's a lot of overlap between current events and a uh, personal reflection. So this guy named Andre Henry, he's a black Christian millennial, cool dude. I know him. I've interacted with him. He is the founder of Hope and Hard Pills, a ministry, and he's a former staffer at Relevant Media Group. They have podcasts. They have blogs and websites. They do a lot of stuff at the intersection of faith and culture. Well, he wrote a post on Medium, where he related an incident about Relevant's CEO, Cameron Strang, uh, an incident of racism and authoritarianism. Andre described an incident early in his very short tenure at Relevant, where Strang shut down Andre's intentions as managing editor. So Andre is the managing editor. He has um, the ability to make decisions about what posts go up and when, he wanted to do a post a day on Relevance website about Black history during Black History Month. And the CEO shut that down. Well, he said, well, no one talked to me about it. Um, which Andre makes clear that hadn't been the norm. Like, as managing editor, he's empowered to come up with this stuff and sort of bring it to the group. And Strang said in this sort of authoritarian manner, kind of meant to shut down any further conversation. He said, Oh, so you're just making decisions now. Like, like, like Andre was trying to deliberately challenge the authority of the CEO by making editorial decisions, which he was empowered and expected to do. So here's a quote from Andre's blog post. He said, I've come to accept that many young ish white evangelical leaders with large platforms, be they podcasts, megachurches, media organizations, conferences, or even social justice campaigns are simply not committed to being anti-racist, but only in appearing non-racist. And they're using us, meaning black people, as props for the show. That is their right, I guess, as these platforms are literally their businesses. So Andre goes on to make the point that Relevant has actually produced some helpful content, not because of its stated commitment to racial justice, but because they bring on great guests who are people of color, and those guests bring on, bring their gifts, their skills, their experiences. But But then he goes on to say this. He says, but what does it mean for those same white people who are afraid to appear too supportive of black freedom to also use our black abundance for brand, celebrity, and profit? He goes on, It is my opinion that Relevant should take responsibility for the way it has failed non-white Christians before it touches the race conversation again. Until they commit to being an anti-racist organization, any attempts to address race are thin. The company is in need of the very information they wish to publish for others. Black Christians, we have to build our own tables. I think that a few of us are called to work within majority white Christian organizations and churches to spur racial reform from within. But I think that a lot more of us than we realize are called to come out of those spaces as an act of protest and self-care. These places are toxic. They can be spiritually and emotionally abusive with their racism and authoritarianism, connected to notions of Christian authority and patriarchy in a distorted kind of theology. And if we leave, we're not abandoning faith. We're not demonstrating hatred for our white Christian brothers and sisters. Instead, we're loving our neighbor by loving ourselves. Loving ourselves enough to say we're not called to endure abuse at the hands of unrepentant Christians. We can love them, we can pray for them, and at the same time extricate ourselves from the trauma that that environment is causing. And we don't need to feel guilty about that. Look, we've had to do this for centuries. So, so here's a little bit of the history of black people building, black Christians in particular, building our own tables. Uh, You know that in the days of slavery, long before the Civil War, black people, when they started becoming Christians, which was a while um, in in terms of the North American context, Christianity of course was in Africa for centuries before North American uh, colonialization by Europeans. But When black Christians started to adopt uh, Christianity in North America while they were enslaved, many slaveholders forbade them to worship. Many slaveholders didn't even want missionaries to share the gospel with enslaved people. But God always makes a way. And when people started converting to Christianity, Um, As enslaved people who were forbidden to worship in a group or in public, what they did, they formed hush arbors. A hush arbor is after a long day of enslaved labor without any compensation. Heat from the sun has tired you out, but you make time for God. You sneak out of the slave quarters, you go off to a secluded place in the woods You literally whisper your prayers, your songs, your sermons, and they called them a hush art because you had to keep quiet, and it was out in the woods. So this was a way that black Christians came out of the white gaze in order to build their own tables. Another one, why do we have historically black denominations? It's because we have historically white denominations that practiced racism. So one of the earliest uh, historically black denominations is the African Methodist Episcopal Church. That began basically when black Methodists were treated as second-class citizens relegated to segregated housing at a white Methodist church in Philadelphia. They came out of there. They built their own table by starting their own church, which then became a denomination, Many, many other historically black denominations started, most of them after the Civil War, when emancipation was declared, and uh, black people now had the freedom to worship as they so chose. And instead of remaining under a uh, racist white leadership in a denomination, they went out and formed their own denominations, like the Na- National Baptist Convention and many others. Uh, in the 20th century. The National Evangelical Association started in 1943, and it was supposed to be sort of this kind of big tent uh, of many denominations and Christian fellowships uh, to come together around their evangelical beliefs. Black people were part of that. But in 1963, black people formed the NBEA, National Black Evangelical Association, they did that uh, initially just to sort of foster fellowship among black evangelicals because there weren't that many. So they needed some uh, platform to to facilitate that community. But very quickly, uh, it became apparent that the predominantly white uh, National Association for Evangelicals they weren't addressing black issues. It wasn't on their radar, and, and some of them were outright racist. So black people had to go and form their own organization. started as the National Negro Association in 63, and then about 10 years later, they changed it to the National Black Evangelical Association. It's still around today, uh, but you can see, building our own tables. And when you think of of this podcast. We're part of the Witness Podcast Suite. We used to be called the Reformed African American Network. For various reasons, both push and pull, we changed our name to The Witness. But some of those push reasons are the racism we experienced at the hands of white Reformed Christians. Not all, of course, but enough uh, to make it clear that uh, these sort of self-proclaimed policemen of theological boundaries weren't going to let us into, quote unquote, their theological camp, which is perfectly fine with us. Um, so when I heard Andre's story and I read him, it's, it's been big on Twitter in sort of these these Christian millennial circles. Um, it brought up all kinds of memories of trauma for me. I went through some very difficult times in uh, uh some Christian circles from about two thousand and fifteen to two thousand and seventeen, and really I'm still dealing with those issues in terms of trust and reconciling with people who I feel harmed me so so it was really difficult for me personally to to read about Andre's story because it mirrored so much of my own um, but I admire Andre because he he went public with it um part of me wonders whether I should have spoken up more about what I experienced at the time. I, now, I know we all need to take our time before we talk about anything traumatic publicly. And, and if at all, you know, you don't ever have to have to go public on these things. But a big part of my reason for not speaking up, I don't think was good. My reason for, for one of the reasons, a big part was for not speaking up was I didn't want to harm people who I've once considered close friends and who I still respect to this day. Now, I think that's a noble sentiment, but I do lament the racial harm that may have continued since then. And I lament that perhaps their organizations lost an opportunity to repent and repair because I didn't bring up those harmful, painful experiences that I had. Uh, So I'm still dealing with that. I, you know, um, I think over time I'll figure it out and at some point I'll tell my story and maybe even use names and whatnot, which again, I'm hesitant to do because I respect the church and I respect um, these individuals, but at the same time, there are cases when we need to name names, when we need to be specific, not to... um, get revenge, not to be vengeful toward people, but so that you give opportunity for those folks to repent, to change their ways, and to stop potentially harming other people. Um, but here's the takeaway. Here's the universal takeaway. Get counseling. Go to therapy. Mental health is a must for any of us who are engaging in a sustained way this Task of racial justice, and especially people of color, particularly black people, we got to take care of our mental health. And uh, there are online services now, I'm looking into. To getting online therapy, uh, not for any acute problem, but really to just process through some of these things, to have a professional to talk to about it. But you can do it via text, you can do it via email, Skype. If you can't physically get to a counselor, I live in a rural area, it's really difficult to get some of these services. So that may be an option for you. It does cost money. Um, I put out a tweet not long ago that said, you know, maybe Christian organizations and churches should consider. Funding therapy for people of color on their staff as part of their commitment to racial justice, because these places wear on you mentally as a minority, and I think it it, it tends to be even more acute, even even worse, perhaps in Christian environments. Um, so so get counseling. Here's the other takeaway: we must build our own tables, patronize. So 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 start your own thing, and then and then patronize those things right? As, especially uh, um, if it's a black Christian ministry, patronize those ministries. Use them. Utilize them. Why write for a racist outlet? Sometimes I do write for predominantly white outlets, but I do it from a position of independence because I always have the witness. By the way, you can submit an article to the witness. If you do want to write publicly, write for us. Email, submit. Submit at thewitnessbcc.com, submit, S-U-B-M-I-T, at thewitnessbcc.com. And going on, why attend these predominantly white conferences where you are sitting there cringing at the next racist comment someone said or might say? Uh, we're putting on our own conference. I talked about the Joy and Justice Conference, but there are many, many others, from the Call and Response Conference to uh, the Courageous Conversations conference put on by Jude 3 to uh, the Just Gospel Conference with with Front Porch. I mean, there are lots of different options. Uh, Why go on their podcasts? Again, sometimes I do, but guess what? I have my own. I actually have two. So it's okay for me to go on and talk about the book and, and get an interview and try to talk to a predominantly white crowd about racial justice, but I'm doing so from a position of independence. You see a pattern here. You don't need to only look at predominantly white Christian outlets as your only platform. Black Christians have been building our own tables for years, and we can still do it. Now, listen, we can and should engage with white Christian ministries, but we should not always do so from a position of utter dependence on their paychecks, on their platform, on their exposure, on their approval. We can, we must engage white Christians as equals. Now, we know that we are ontologically created by God equal, But in terms of institutional and economic and and, and relational power, we need to build our own tables. And we can do this by forming our own organizations, podcasts, blogs, conferences, all of that. Then we don't have to wait for a change in the attitudes from people who may never change. We can force a change in behavior because as equals, we're bringing our own money, our own organizations, our own following. And when we do this right, We'll be inviting people to our tables, and we won't replicate the same injustices that we've endured. We will be sharing space and sharing seats at our tables in a way that white Christians for centuries have failed to do for black people. Don't beg for a seat at their table. Build your own table. That's it for this week. Remember to register and visit joyandjustice.com or you can make a donation there. Like my author page on Facebook, I always post an audiogram of this podcast there. And so you can make further comments. It's a way to continue the discussion. Jamar Tisby one j- facebook.com forward slash JamarTisby1. I'm also on Instagram at JamarTisby and Twitter at JamarTisby. Email us. Uh, I would love to hear from you. If you have suggestions, if you have questions, footnotespod1, that's footnotespod and the number one at gmail.com. Thanks to our production assistant, Christina Button, our award-winning producer, Bo York. Footnotes is part of the Witness Podcast Week. Check out the WitnessBCC.com for more great content. Thanks for listening. Until next time, I'm Jamar Tisby, and this is Footnotes.